You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. If you've ever wished for a teaching structure that allows you to focus on your passions, charge more for your time, and take vacations, you're going to love today's episode. My guest, Ashley Zaberi, is a former marketing professional for yoga companies and a mother of two who discovered the magic of teaching classes as a series during the pandemic. Ashley is the founder of Inhale Thrive, an online yoga training and continuing education provider for yoga teachers. She writes extensively about yoga philosophy and is working on her first book, A Modern Thematic Interpretation and Teaching Guide for the Yoga Sutra. Ashley is a mama, a military spouse, Ohio native, and has lived in six states in the past eight years. In this episode, you'll hear how she leveraged her strengths and circumstances to develop a format of teaching that's sustainable for her. My hope is that you feel inspired by this conversation to develop your own way of teaching that aligns your passion, your gifts, and your circumstances to make your teaching career more sustainable. Let's jump right into the conversation, and I will see you on the other side. Welcome to the podcast, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love to start with a little bit of your story of why you started teaching yoga and when you discovered this system of teaching series classes. Tell us a little bit about that progression. Why I started teaching yoga was a fluke. I ended up doing a yoga teacher training because I was working for a yoga company in their marketing department. And they offered me the opportunity to take their teacher training program as a way for me to get the inside view on how these programs work so that I could be better at my job as a marketer to market said program. And I was working for a yoga company because I loved yoga. So I was always interested in taking a teacher training, though, like many people, it wasn't necessarily to teach. I never thought about teaching. I never thought of myself as a teacher. I just wanted to learn more about yoga. And when the opportunity was handed to me, I jumped on it. And what I discovered in teacher training was how much I enjoyed teaching. That's why I ended up becoming a teacher because I had this love for teaching. I just loved teaching (laughs) and being in front of the classroom. And of course, I loved yoga. And I wanted to teach people about yoga and how to find all of the benefits that I had found in my own personal practice. So I wanted to share that. It wasn't until a lot later that I actually executed on this idea of teaching series-based classes. But I have this memory of being in my 200-hour teacher training and I think we were sitting in the lobby getting ready to go into class. Some of us were working on homework, doing some sequencing or something like that. And I have this memory of like, wow, this could be my life. This could be my full-time job. I could be sequencing yoga classes as my full-time job and teaching these things. And I was kind of daydreaming and thinking about like, I could teach classes in this way and do all of these things. And 
what I was imagining was something like a series of classes, teaching a series on a particular topic. And though I don't remember the exact details, I had that vision before I even graduated from my 200-hour teacher training to teach series-based classes. And of course, then I graduated from teacher training and I went into teaching weekly classes at the studio. And that just kind of became the way that I taught for years and years. And I actually started teaching series-based classes finally when the pandemic hit, because then all of a sudden, well, that's not completely true, but that's when it became regular for me because then it was all up to me, right? Like I was controlling my schedule. I was teaching for myself. I wasn't teaching for other studios anymore. It was just all me. And when it was all me, that's what I wanted to do. And so that's what I did. Previously, I had done like series workshops with a studio where I would do a four-part series on a particular style or way of teaching. And I did that a few times throughout the years with a few different styles. I think I did one for Yoga Nidra. I did one for Yoga Tune-Up. So I would take some of these extra or what I consider kind of extra trainings that I had done throughout the years. And instead of teaching weekly classes on those things, I would offer them as series-based workshops. But then once I started teaching for myself, I kind of transitioned most of my teaching to that format. Great. And before we dive more deeply into that format of series-based classes, I'd love to ask you a few follow-up questions about your background. I'm curious about the company that you were working for, if you're willing to share what that company was, or at least what kind of products you were marketing. That'd be really interesting. I was working for Core Power Yoga, and I was working in their marketing department. And my role was really to support all of the different individual studios. So I was helping and working with the studio managers for all of those individual studios, helping them develop their flyers that they were creating to market any workshops or programs that they were offering in their individual studios. I was in charge of writing the newsletters that would go out to everybody, and that was coming from the corporate arm. So anybody that was signed up for the Core Power Yoga emails, they were getting an email from me at some point every month. And eventually my role transitioned into more of social media. And then I was helping manage social media accounts for Core Power Yoga, as well as helping, again, support each individual studio to manage their own social media accounts. And how big was the marketing team for Core Power Yoga? How many people were you working with on this? There was me, basically like a coordinator. That was, I think, like the title or role that I had. There was somebody working in graphic design doing a lot of the graphics. There was a person in charge of the web website. And then there was the marketing director. So about four. At the time, there were 86, between 60 to 80 studios. I mean, now it's even bigger. But at that time, I mean, that was, it's crazy to think in companies sometimes, even really large companies, how small (laughs) teams behind the scenes can be to manage all of that. And then when you first started teaching, were you teaching for Core Power Yoga? I was. How long did that last? When did you branch out from there? When did you leave that position? So interestingly, Core Power Yoga's model is mostly a corporate-owned studio model, or it was back in the day when I was working for them. So 
there were very few studios that were franchise owned, but there were a few. And because I happened to be an employee, I was working in the headquarters. I was an employee of Corpar Yoga. There was basically a rule that said that if you were an employee, you weren't paid to teach classes because you were an employee of the company and that was part of your job. I think that, you know, makes sense if you're the manager of the studio, right? It's your job to manage the studio. You're an employee of the company. And so it's your job to teach yoga classes as a manager of the studio. I was not a manager of a studio, nor was I working in any studio capacity. I was working at the corporate headquarters, but because I was an employee, that rule applied to me as well. So I couldn't get paid to teach yoga classes, even though my job description and role as marketing coordinator had nothing to do with teaching yoga classes. It was completely different. So what I ended up doing was I went and taught at a franchise studio because that wasn't under the auspices of the actual kind of corporate owned studio model. And I was lucky enough that when I was in the Denver area, there were a few franchise studios in that area that were close by and I could teach at those and get paid. And so I did that for a while, but then that was also right around the time when I was getting ready to transition out of Denver. And so I ended up teaching for a couple months, I want to say maybe three months. And then we moved. My boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, and I moved away from Colorado to Texas. And at the time, there were no studios in Texas. And so I left Core Power at that time. My husband is in the military, so we moved around a lot. We were often living in markets where there were no Core Power yogas. But when we finally came to Washington, D.C., three years later, maybe, I went back to Core Power Yoga and I started teaching there again. And it was a unique opportunity for me because Core Power had just recently opened in the Washington, D.C. market. And so they were in that very infant stage of opening new studios. And because they were new to the area, there weren't a lot of people that were familiar with the Core Power way of teaching. And I was. And so it was very easy for me to kind of walk in there and get a job teaching. It was the easiest thing for me to do being brand new to a market, you know, rather than trying to go to all the other different studios and establish relationships and prove to people that I knew what I was doing and that I could teach. It was very, you know, simple for me to just walk into Core Power, wave my credentials and say, hey, I can teach here. And they're happy to have me. And so I ended up doing that for about two years. And after that two year mark, I had kind of hit the point where I had established other relationships in the area and it was clear to me that the way that I was teaching was changing drastically from the way that Core Power teaches and it just wasn't a good fit for me anymore. And so I parted ways. And then you started on that path, that common path of teaching at multiple studios. Is that right? Oh, yeah. So I I think one, two, three, four... I was teaching at four or five studios at once at one point. And in the Washington, D.C. area, it's one of those places where on paper, it might say that something is five miles away, but it could take you an hour to get there type thing because of traffic. And so I was nuts. I was crazy. I was driving all over the metropolitan area, teaching at these studios that were not necessarily close to each other, not even in the same city and uh, subbing. Sometimes I would go into the district itself. Oftentimes I was in Alexandria. I would go to other Arlington, other areas. And 
anybody that's familiar with this area is just shaking their head at me like, what were you thinking? <laughs> it just didn't make any sense. And on top of that, I was teaching private and I was going to people's houses. And so I was also driving all over the area, going to different people's houses, teaching private lessons, and then, you know, teaching classes at all these different studios, leading teacher trainings at different studios, teaching workshops at different studios, all the things. And how long did this go on? I did that for pretty much the entire time that I lived in D.C. the first time, so four or five years. And then we moved away to Ohio and I went back to teaching in a studio, but only one or two, just a couple classes. At that point, I had my son and that changed everything. (laughs) And so I never went back. After I left the DC area, I never went back to doing all of that craziness. (laughs) And then the pandemic happened and like other things in play too. But So when did you move back to DC though? So we moved back to D.C. in October. So we've been there almost a year now, but I had a second child. So right when we moved, I had a three-month-old baby and I knew that it was going to be a little bit of time before I kind of geared things back up from a teaching perspective. And so I didn't even try to go back into any of that. And even moving forward, I don't have any plans to do that. So, Okay, so let's rewind to the spring of 2020. You're living in Ohio. Yep. You're teaching for a couple studios. Yep. You have one child, but maybe you're thinking of having another. Yep. And the world shuts down. Yeah. What went through your mind and how did you adapt and pivot at that point? Honestly, I was just like, okay, let's do this. Go online. And I had been in the online space long enough to know what I was doing. So it wasn't that challenging for me from a technological standpoint. I can't say that I had regularly been teaching yoga online. There was definitely some learning curves that I had to figure out. But I do remember those days where I was sitting in front of the computer screen for hours and hours just trying to figure out all of the pieces and parts and updating the website and figuring out, okay, how are people going to sign up for class? How are they going to pay? What service am I going to use to do this? And interestingly, I don't know exactly why I did this or thought about this, but I didn't wait for the studios that I was teaching at to do anything. I just did it myself. And I basically set it all up for myself and kept my same schedule. So whatever the schedule was that I was teaching for the studios, I just, it was easiest for me, I think, to to maintain a sense of normalcy to the best of my ability. And that was to continue working in the same way that I had been. So to continue going to teach the 7 p.m. Tuesday class, even though I wasn't driving to the studio to go teach it, I was like, I'm still going to show up and teach this class because that's what I do and that's the schedule that I know. And so I did it. I just set it all up and I put it out there and I said to the studios, I'm still teaching these classes online. Share this with your students if you want to and I'll keep teaching. And then eventually those studios caught up and figured out how to do it all on their own. And then I was able to kind of integrate back into their systems. But because I had set it up independently for myself, I was lucky enough that those studios all let me continue doing it on my own without kind of figuring out how to do it through them. And then eventually I stopped 
teaching. I want to say summer rolled around summer 2020. And at that point, I think I stopped teaching with them because I want to say it's hard to remember. I do think at some point we went on vacation. We like rented a house somewhere in another city and just sat in that house somewhere else and then maybe did some things outside. But I didn't have my same studio environment or access to the same Wi-Fi or anything like that. So I stopped teaching with them over the summer and then I just never went back to teaching with those studios and continued to just do it on my own. So when you were teaching with those studios, that was drop-in? Yes. And then after that break and when you started doing it on your own, is that when you started to focus on series instead? Yes. Tell me more about that. How did that go? What was that like for you? It was great for me for so many different reasons. First, I was able to control my schedule. So I could choose, I could look at the calendar and say, I've got this five week or six week or four week span of time where this is a good time for me. I can show up every week and teach a class. But then we might be going on vacation or some things might be happening and that's not such a good time for me. So I'm just not going to teach during that time. So I could kind of find those chunks of time in my calendar where it made most sense for me to teach and then be able to show up fully and be there for teaching that thing. Second, I was able to teach what I really wanted to. So I am personally a really big believer in there being a difference between being a yoga instructor and a yoga teacher. To me, a yoga instructor is someone that instructs people and guides them through whatever, but tells them kind of how to do something in a particular way. A teacher is somebody who really gets to be an educator. You're educating the student, the practitioner about themselves, helping them be an inquiry, giving them context and reasons why they're doing things. And so I'm such a huge educator. I love and am passionate about educating people. And so the idea of being able to go really deep into a specific topic over the course of four classes or five classes or six classes was really something that I was excited to do. And one of the series I taught was on the yamas and niyamas. So each week we would go through a different yama, different niyama. And that ended up being a 10-week series. And you can really dive deep because you can spend an entire class just talking about one particular thing. And then it builds over time. From a marketing perspective, it was so much easier for me to market a class series like this because it's an event. It's more than just one hour-long drop-in yoga class. There's something that there was a lot for me to talk about and I could market it so that people knew that they were signing up for something that was very specific. It wasn't just this random like drop in and then I have to market it every single week or that there was specificity to it. So it was easier to market it to people. And because it was the pandemic, that also built community. It was so great to see those same people coming back to class every single week and they would get to know each other. And of course, they're joining from all over the country in different places and asking how everyone's doing and hearing how different parts of the country were doing different things pandemic-wise. And it was just fun to be able to build that online community in a space like that. So there were so many reasons why I absolutely loved teaching it that way or teaching that way. And I continue to do that. Okay, so I've... 
a whole bunch of questions. <laughs> Who were your students and how did you find new students? So a lot of my students were people who had followed me throughout the years. Some of them were clients that I had when I'd been in Washington, D.C. Some of them were students that had been coming to classes of mine when I was teaching at studios in Washington, D.C. Some of them were people who I had taught in studios when I was living in Texas or Arizona or Colorado or all the different places that I had been. So caveat, because I had been online writing blogs, had a presence, I've had a newsletter since 2012. I had been building an audience and writing newsletters and staying in touch with people for a very long time. So I had a built-in audience to reach out to, which is why it's so important to have a newsletter. So those were my students. Like that's who I was reaching out to, this list of people that I had been nurturing for a really long time, but they were coming from all over because I had lived in so many different places and had so many different experiences teaching in so many different ways. And to find new students, I was doing a lot of marketing around, I mean, there's the social media. I can't say that a ton of people have come to me from social media, but sometimes people find me. But then also partnerships with other people. I did a, a workshop with Yoga Alliance that brought a lot of people to my website. I've done podcast interviews. So I've just, I try to find ways to be out in the yoga community in, in different ways to attract new people to me. But it's always a very slow growing organic process where I hear the students that end up taking courses from me or classes with me. They started because I, they found me through taking a workshop that I did at Yoga Alliance or they heard me on a podcast somewhere. And then they came to my website and they signed up for a sequencing template that's free that I offer online. And then they were on my newsletter list and they were getting newsletters from me for a year. And then I, they got a newsletter saying that I was offering a series and they signed up. So it could be, you know, a year or more before somebody has been aware of me to the point where they actually sign up for something and pay me to take a class. Yeah. And I think that really speaks to this slow burn mentality. Yes. It's really easy to get frustrated and impatient about building something online. I just hear a lot of yoga teachers feeling frustrated about getting new students in an online space, but they were expecting it to happen within a month or two months or three months. And I think that it's rare for it to happen that way. I think trust builds more slowly online than it does in person. For sure. And I think it's always important to kind of couple whatever you're doing online with a local effort as well, if possible. I also think that people in your situation who have lived a lot of different places, I think that can be really challenging every time you're moving and starting from scratch. And when the pandemic hit and everybody moved online, people in that situation had a head start. They had a bonus yeah. of having communities from lots of different places where yes. you're now like the faraway expert, right? Instead of being, you know, the homegrown <laughs> hometown person, which right. is great too. And some people love, but there is something also compelling about, oh, it's this person I used to take classes with five years ago and they were so far away and I haven't been able to take their class for so long. And yay, now I can. I think that's really cool. So you know, there's there's pluses and minuses to every situation. And I think what your story really demonstrates is look at your circumstances 
and figure out how to work with that. Yes. I've definitely been doing that for a very long time. And I think that was groomed in me from the moment when I realized that we were, my husband and I were going to be living a military lifestyle. I had to like sit down and be really honest with myself and say like, okay, I know that I'm going to be moving every couple of years. What am I going to do? Like, I'm not going to be able to continue working at this marketing job in Denver, Colorado when we move to all these different places. So how am I going to show up to continue doing my work? And how am I going to build that in a way that will allow me to constantly be moving? And I knew online and location independence was what I needed to do. That was in 2012. Like I've been working towards that since 2012. (laughs) So, and like I said, that coupled with a local effort, because just from a personal perspective, I still like showing up to a place and seeing real people and building some of that in-person community. That's important for my own just personal well-being. I try to do both. So let's talk a little bit more details about these series. Yes. How long do you like for your series to be? Let's say minimum and maximum amount of time. So 10 weeks, that Yamas and Niyamas series was definitely the maximum that I've done. And I kind of, I did shorten that to, it was basically marketed as two five-week series. So people could sign up just for the Yamas, just for the Niyamas, or for the whole thing. I gave people options. I think that's a really long time and it's hard to sustain that over 10 weeks. Four weeks, I've found, tends to be good. I think I've done maybe a six-week one as well. And I've done three weeks too. Some of it, I think, depends on the timing when you're offering it. So I've done a three-week series that was more towards the end of the year, kind of around that in-between Thanksgiving, Christmas time. And that's just a really busy time not a great time to offer things. So because I offered it in a really short format, it was a little bit easier sell. The 10-week series was in the spring. So it kind of started, I think, in February and went through the end of maybe even April or into May. So I found three, four weeks is a good time for people because it's enough for them to go a little bit deeper, but they don't have to commit to it long-term. And how do you handle missed classes? Well, it's really easy online because I'm recording everything so they can just go back and watch the recording. How far ahead do you market each series? I try to start six weeks out. And when I say that, I mean six weeks out, I'm looking at, okay, in six weeks, I want to start teaching this. Let's get all of the nuts and bolts and behind the scenes things in place. And I get all of that in place so that the actual marketing that people are seeing might start five, four weeks out, something like that. Okay. So you basically start your planning six weeks out and yeah, then or before. marketing, marketing four to five weeks. Yeah. Now that's a lot of marketing or that's a long time marketing. If you're thinking about a four-week series and you're spending four weeks marketing it, does that feel like a good balance to you? Because I know a lot of yoga teachers find that marketing isn't their favorite. It feels really draining to them. They'd rather be teaching. How do you work with that balance? I think for me, it's a little bit different because my professional background is in marketing. So (laughs) there is an, an aspect of that that is part of my identity too. And I know how to do that stuff. And Although it's certainly not my favorite and I would absolutely rather be teaching any day, I also just know that's the nature of the business. And I've kind of got a template for myself in the way that I market almost everything I do. So 
I really just kind of sit down and do a rinse repeat type strategy. Like, okay, I look, I'm looking at this is what I'm teaching. I know that I have to send a dedicated newsletter. And, I'll, and what I'll do is I'll start sending a newsletter, maybe in that like four weeks out time frame, to all the people who have previously taken a workshop or series or class with me. So that's what I call like my hot list. I know these people have bought from me before. They love what I do. They're the most likely to buy from me again. I'm going to start by sending it out to them and letting them know that another one's coming up. Then I'll start getting some sales right away because I know that they're excited about it. They want to get it on a calendar. From there, then maybe the next week, I'll send out a more general, broad newsletter to everyone on my list. These are people that maybe haven't bought from me before, but I'll let them know this is coming. Then I'll start you know, mentioning it in my weekly newsletters as well. So they're seeing it for four weeks in addition to the dedicated newsletter that they're seeing. Then I'll start putting it out on social media. So there are other outlets where they're starting to see it as well. Sometimes I will send personal emails to people who I think might uh, really enjoy it or have expressed to me interest in that particular topic before. So I have kind of like a timeline that I follow every single time. And at this point, it's just like, all right, pull up the template, pop in what I need specifically for this particular series, and then do it. (laughs) And what would you say is the balance of time and energy spent marketing versus actually planning and teaching? Way more marketing than teaching. Way more. (laughs) I feel like a lot of stomachs just dropped right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the way that I look at it is obviously my passion is for the teaching. But if I spend a bunch of time planning a really amazing series that I'm super excited to teach and I've got no one to teach it to, what's the point? (laughs) So I've got to get people in there to be able to show up and do that thing. And the reward to me is to be able to do the teaching. It's like the teaching is the reward, the marketing, the work. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of times people sign up for teacher training, either, like you said, without the intention to teach or with sort of these stars in their eyes of like, I'm going to get to make a living sharing yoga and it's going to be so wonderful. But I don't think that there's any truly magical way to make a living ultimately there's going to be pieces of what you do that you really align with and resonate with and love and there's probably going to be pieces that you know even if you like it at first it's going to get boring and tiring so i love what you're saying about you see the teaching as the reward and the marketing is like just what needs to be done to get there Absolutely. I can't say that I love it. If I loved it, I would still be in marketing (laughs) because I certainly would get paid more to be like in marketing working in some corporate job. And I know how to do this stuff, but like, you know, I don't want to do that every single day, but that ends up being a lot of what I do. And I think the biggest way we can influence our own happiness and satisfaction is by managing our expectations. If we expect teaching yoga to be like this easy, magical, fluid, (laughs) simple situation, then we're going to have a dissonance whenever we come up against the challenge. And that's why like, I even did a podcast episode in the spring about, hey, teaching yoga is a high-stress career. If you don't expect that, you're going to feel really let down and you're going to feel like something's wrong. But if you do expect that, 
if you're expecting challenge, then you just meet the challenge and you can really appreciate the parts that are easy. Yeah. You know, back in 20, I don't know, 17, 18, I actually interviewed you for a project that I did where I interviewed a hundred different yoga teachers. I don't know if I got to a hundred. I interviewed like 50 yoga teachers (laughs) at least. And I was asking them about teaching full-time. And one of the things that I found that was really interesting was that the people who looked at themselves as an entrepreneur or a business owner first and a yoga teacher second were the ones that were much more successful and continuing to teach versus the people who really resisted that idea of being an entrepreneur or didn't want to consider themselves a small business owner. So it's like that mindset that you're talking about of managing expectations and having a particular mindset of like, let's be really honest about what it is that we are. Yes, we're yoga teachers. That's the service that we provide, but we are also business owners. (laughs) And if you don't want to step into that role and all of the responsibilities that come with that role, then I've found in both myself and the people that I've seen and work with, you're going to have a hard time. Yeah. And at that point, you might want to consider looking at it as a hobby, managing your own expectations about your ability to make a living without having to do anything you don't like. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. That's tough for a lot of people to hear. Yeah. Is there anything either about series classes or any of the topics we've touched on today that you'd like to share or anything you'd like to emphasize? Yeah, I think that one, teaching series-based classes can get you more sustainability. I think in teaching, just because you're able to choose your schedule, you can teach a series. I look at it quarterly now. So I try to maybe think about, you know, what could I be teaching each quarter? And actually what I'm doing currently is kind of this ongoing series. It's just one workshop but I teach it seasonally. So at each equinox and solstice, so people know that around the equinox or the solstice, there's going to be another one in the series coming up. And it's not, you know, a three-week series. It's just kind of like a seasonal thing. But that was something that I was able to do at the bare minimum to keep me teaching in this transition time for me where I'm still kind of in the throes of having a baby and she's turning one next week. So like I'm crawling back into that space where I'll be able to start teaching more. And I'm looking to maybe doing a meditation series. So when you're looking at your life and the situation that you might be in in any given moment, being able to teach these series might be a nice way for you to stay in the game without completely stepping out and being sustainable because you can make it mold to the schedule that works best for you. And I'm always interested in this idea of sustainability. How do we sustain our yoga teaching careers? Because it's so easy to get burnt out and from a financial perspective can charge more and make more money all at once, like for kind of a big type event or serious thing than teaching these drop-in classes every single week. And you can teach the same series over So, you know, instead of starting over for every single series, maybe you recycle that series the next year or every couple of years you come back so that you don't have to keep creating some big new thing. You've already done it. Just do it again. Just wait for a little while. And then instead of coming up with new things constantly, just reuse. 
So that makes things easier for you too. And then I think it just becomes like, if there's a particular topic that you're really passionate about teaching, this is the way for you to be able to do it. It's very hard sometimes in a one hour weekly drop-in class to teach, period. So if there's something that you really want to share with people, offering it in something like a series can be a great way for you to get the fulfillment as a teacher of offering that and sharing what you love. I love that. I love the message about sustainability and it might look different for different people, sustainability, but I love having these tools to be able to craft a version that's individual, that's customized for you. I think that's really great. If listeners want to find out more about you and your work, where should they go? Inhalethrive.com is where I have my website for yoga teachers. I offer lots of different resources there, a sequencing template, a course on the Yoga Sutra, and 300-hour teacher training. All of it's online. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you, Madel. A huge thank you to Ashley for sharing so many great tips and also for not being afraid of an honest reality check. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I do not sugarcoat things. I really want you to feel inspired, but I do not want to make you empty promises. This past spring, I did a podcast episode called Teaching Yoga is a High-Stress Career. I was surprised by how many yoga teachers reached out after this episode was released to tell me that it helped them feel like less of a failure to know that other people struggle the same way they do. I think the hardest thing about it is that reality is often very different from our expectations. When we build up the idea of teaching into this fantasy world where the whole process feels the way you do right at the end of your asana practice, then there's no way that reality is going to live up to that fantasy. If we go into teaching with more realistic expectations, then the challenges we face won't throw us as much. And I think we won't take them as personally. Teaching yoga is incredibly rewarding and fulfilling. It just might not be the right fit as a career for every person who feels called to teach. And that is truly okay. You can be an amazing teacher without making a career out of it. On a related note, I've been noticing this pattern lately about how much energy is wasted on indecision. For example, the decision whether or not to go full-time as a yoga teacher or keep it as a part-time gig. We get so caught up in the desire to make the right decision that we end up getting stuck there. Now, it's possible to have an unresolved decision that doesn't hold you back at all. What I'm talking about is the times when we feel like we cannot take action until a decision's been made. And the longer this pattern goes on, the worse we feel about not having taken any actions. So it starts to build and there starts to be this extra pressure around making the decision beyond just the decision itself. So I want to remind you that your decisions are reversible. You can decide to teach full-time and then you can change your mind. Changing your mind does not mean that you failed. It does not mean that the action you took was wasted. All it means is that you're going to redirect whatever you learned 
from that past experience into whatever you do next. I believe time spent worrying about getting a decision right is more wasted energy than time spent learning and doing. Even if you don't end up building on the exact work that you did in the long run, experience and repetition of creating something and working towards something, that is worth so much. So if you have a decision that's been weighing on you or a change you've been thinking about making, this is your invitation to start with a tentative decision and start taking action. You never know where action will lead you, but it will lead you forward into your future. In fact, no matter how much you think through a decision or an idea, you still don't know where it's going to lead you. When I had the idea to start this podcast over four years ago, I could never have dreamed of the places that it led me and the ways it pushed me to grow and the people that it connected me to. I feel like I'm getting on a soapbox and it's reminding me of this awesome Goethe quote, whatever you dream you can do, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. I can't remember where I first heard that quote, but it's been a friend to me for a long time. I love it because hearing that is a reminder to step into the here and now, to set boundaries around the amount of worry and regret that I indulge in. And to help me do this, I'm really grateful to have meditation in my life because thought habits of past and future are so deeply ingrained that they're usually happening behind the scenes and we don't even notice that they're going on. But when we sit down to meditate, the ways that our minds are spiraling or jumping all over the place becomes obvious. And the discipline to focus on the present, eventually it becomes a place of rest and rejuvenation versus this big effort, right? At first, when you first start meditating, bringing your mind into the present, it feels like it takes so much work. But what I've learned is that effort or that experience of effort to come into the present moment, that's kind of made up. That's manufactured by the part of me that would rather be worrying or regretting. And that there's another part of me that it's actually very natural to drop into the present moment. And the more that I can make friends with the part of me that knows how to do that, the easier it becomes, or at least the less effort I experience the practice to be. I usually end these episodes with an invitation to carve out time and space for your personal practice. And today, I want to invite you to make seated meditation a part of that practice. If you're someone who struggles with seated meditation, I can totally relate. <laughs> I've been struggling with it for about two decades. And like I was mentioning earlier, the one thing I've learned is that the struggle itself, it's not leading where we want to go, that engaging with the struggle isn't helpful. In order for meditation to work, we need to approach it with a softer touch. And part of that might be releasing some expectations about what it's going to look like, 
what it will feel like, how long it will be, especially in the beginning. You want to think of it as a a process of building a relationship, making friends. Next week, I'm going to share a bit about my own meditation practice with you. But for now, I invite you to carve out a space to sit each day this week, even if it's just two minutes. And if you already have a meditation practice, ask yourself, how could I nourish and deepen this relationship? Is there a way that you have been holding yourself back or skipping over your potential that you're ready to face? There's always places and ways that we've been holding ourselves back. That's what's so beautiful about human potential. As far as I can tell, it's limitless. And the opportunity is for each of us to engage with where we are now and our perceived limits. And when we can engage with our current space and our current limitations, or what we believe are our limitations, with curiosity and openness, then there's always some place to grow into. And that, to me, is what makes life worth living. So thank you for doing this work. It is a joy to do it alongside you. Thank you for listening and supporting the podcast. I will see you back here next week.